0: at regular Hours, episode 170 for July 6th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Esenfloh. And I'm Pam Vador And we are in the not-too-distant future, reading Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. This is our post-apocalyptic story. How, how, how can we go on after the apocalypse? Through the power of art. ha <laughs> ha! that's
1: what we've learned it.
2: <laughs> art must guys, go on <laughs> art must go on but you guys I was so curious what you folks would think of this and I know Steve you had read it before but so I'm really curious to start with you Chip what do you think this is a very different writing style than we've seen in a lot of the novels we've read what do you think of this writing style
1: well I initially thought that uh, it's kind of an elevated writing style <laughs> certainly a person who is Master's story I, I it immediately brought to me the, the thoughts of Shakespeare, where initially you, you you're reading it and you're not you haven't gotten the rhythm down. you haven't got the flow down, you haven't gotten the how it's being presented. but then again you, your your brain kind of kicks in and all of a sudden you're there you've you got what the story is what's going on there. And you've got how it's being presented and all of a sudden the flow starts happening and you're immersed in it. The the second part I'm going to say is I was immediately thought of Alan Moore's Watchmen, which is a Mm -hmm. graphic novel where um, in this story, we we pop to a comic book, which is Dr. 11 and Watchmen, which is a graphic novel, which has comics in it throughout the the story, they, they break off into this pirate comic and you're reading this pirate comic, you're wondering what's going on in this pirate comic that has to do with this, you know, the story of of Alan Moore's Watchmen and Dave Gibbons, which is a a masterful telling of a story that once again, just like our writer here, has an elevated narrative that, you know, you have to kind of get in the groove to read. I'm, I'm all in right now. This is a really good story. I could see how Someone would want to read this through like a weekend. I'm going to just bang it out in a weekend
0: it does take a moment you're absolutely right very much like Shakespeare it does take a moment for us to get oriented to how she is writing and her style of writing is definitely a an elevated literature sort of writing not the genre fiction that that you know how much I enjoy my my silly science fiction she gets into a little bit of some metafiction here with that comic book that she has introduced us to it, which in this section this week really comes to the forefront as to why Dr. Eleven is so important to our story. And she gets into, you know, some other uh, metafictional pieces like Calvin and Hobbes with Spaceman Spiff and a little bit of Star Trek this week. Oh, yeah,
2: oh, yeah. we're going to talk about Star Trek for sure. <laughs> I'm actually on a super Stephen King kick right now, and I was just reading Hearts on Atlantis last night. And in that novel, one of the characters says, good books don't give up all their secrets at once. And it's so funny because, I mean, Station Eleven only came out in 2014. This is my fourth time reading it It, in just seven years. And it's so funny because every time I go to read it, I think, oh, I just read it last year. I'm going to skim it this time. And then I don't because there's just so much there and each time I read it, I notice all of these new things, so many stories woven together. And, you know, I think sometimes that can be disorienting for the reader. It has to be done very well. And I think this is an example of someone who's really done the tapestry of narrative in a way that's very compelling.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how well the miniseries version of this is going to play out because of that crafting, because of that such careful wordsmithing that she's done here to put these different stories, you know, parallel to each other. Here's the past of what had happened pre-pandemic and in the pandemic and then here's what's happening post-pandemic and those, those parallels are so well crafted i don't know how well that will read in a a different format
1: we have a, an example of that we have the watchman graphic novel and then we have Zack snyder's basically taking that graphic novel and making it into a um Uh, a movie and you know there's a little bit different uh in in sort of how that was presented one person said that Watchmen was unfilmable and even Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons said hey listen this is best read in its original format and it's not really designed for you know a different uh you know genre um presentation so this this book right here I, I don't know how Well, they would weave it, really, because it is, there's, you're you're jumping through the forward to, I mean, the present, you've got the past going on and you've got a mystery. You got, you got things Mm -hmm. going on.
0: It is It is a mystery, isn't it? There, There's several mysteries that are just woven through. This is not a mystery story, but there's so many little pieces that we are getting so many interesting clues, especially in our section this week with all of these different stories interwoven.
1: And my hope is that, that towards the end, we come to why this was important to release this information this way.
2: And it's interesting because one of the things that connects the past and the present and the post-apocalyptic future are these aesthetic products. So I'm sure you noticed this paperweight, right? Mm
1: -hmm. This
2: funny paperweight that that Kirsten has in her bag. And it's so beautiful. Tanya gave it to her the night that Arthur died. Then it's a storm cloud inside of this little ball. And like, it's the apocalypse. There's no papers flying around, but she keeps this and now in in our section today we read about miranda receiving that paperweight and saying Mm -hmm. she's going to keep it for the rest of her life which we absolutely know she has not done because we've seen it 20 years later and in the station 11 comics which kirsten also has in her backpack now we see miranda actually writing them and there's just something so powerful but also there's something like so ephemeral about the process of creativity that that is really celebrated
0: here. The the reader is rewarded with these things mm-hmm. in the story. The the author has given us these moments in the story and and when we the reader get to oh here's the the storm in the rock, which by the way, every time I think about it, I think of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Totally.
2: Yes, me too. <laughs> that's
0: that's I think yes. the imagery that, that she's going for there is this idea of of capturing this storm and, and being able to witness this storm in this other format. That's that's what I think of every it's like time, a time I think
2: magical storm too. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean as combination of nature and supernatural.
1: Right. I was just in Ottawa, Illinois last week. And uh, I was having lunch at this uh, cheese shop, and they had these mementos from the area. And there was a marble making company in that area. And so they had this big collection of the marbles they made. So the the paperweight reminded me of sort of the act of making something that was, there was was an artisan, there was a skill to making particular types of marbles you could get maybe colors, but could you get the swirls of the the hmm. glass to, to to make different things inside? So anyway, that, that was kind of fun that I got to read this today. And also, you know, was reminded of a company that, that actually produced things.
2: And it's just so fascinating when you read a decent amount, how often things connect, right? To other things you're reading, to places you're visiting, you know, everything, everything is connected, <laughs> you know? that's the beauty of literature, right? There's these threads that each of us can bring into our own lives in one way or another. It'll be different for different readers, but we can each get that experience. And I think the poetic language that Mandel uses throughout this novel really invites us to be very active as readers and to be looking around our own lives and world and making connections all the time.
1: And you, Teaching this multiple times, I'm sure, has rewarded you with rereading because you're catching different ways and the, the, the stories put together. This is, this is a book that seems like it would be right for rereading.
2: And there are some books that I will reread and think, yes, that is exactly how I remembered it. But this is a book that I reread and I think, how did I not notice that and that and that, <laughs> even though I read it rather recently? So, yeah.
0: And you bring up teaching this. This seems like a book that would be ripe for teaching. Like, compared to some of the other books that we've read in the last year, this book seems made for the classroom.
2: Definitely. And it's funny because students at first are quite disoriented by the time shifts. And it's funny how often students will say exactly the same thing. They say, oh, I usually don't like books that that switch back and forth with a lot of flashbacks but I did like this one (laughs) and it's just that she does it really really well
1: well last week I I mentioned I liked the book but I was having difficult time Mm -hmm. remembering like if you would have given me a test on it I would have been like I yes but I Mm -hmm. am this week as we were reading this section I got into the flow a lot better and I'm starting to make those we talked about connections and mm-hmm. um, so let's let's go ahead and ask the, the big question, whose story in this section is our favorite?
0: It's this section is full of stories, isn't it? This is the the explanation for so many pieces of the puzzle that we may have not quite understood in the first section. This week, we get so many different people's stories. We get Arthur and Miranda. And Kirsten and Clark, we get a boy, I I forgot about Clark's story that I had to scroll down for that one. There's so many different pieces to this puzzle. We get a lot of Arthur's backstory here, for sure.
2: So I'm really curious because at the end of last semester, a student came to me and said, "Okay, class is over, but I just want to know whose is your favorite story in Station Eleven? And my answer is actually Clark. But we're just at the beginning of that story right now. So I wouldn't think you would be there. Who's your favorite story, Steve?
0: I would say for for this section, Arthur's story is my favorite. He was not certainly a lovable character in, in the story thus far, but the whole history of his his upbringing and his life on Delano Island is brought to the forefront for this section this tiny little Canadian island that the dumb Americans don't know where it is and
1: oh, Canadians
0: we... don't either by the way <laughs> okay good. good it's above Maine Steve. Me... it's above Maine <laughs> That was a funny section, wasn't it? The the Americans don't know geography at all. And when somebody mentions something about Canada, they go, oh, Canada, that's by Maine, right? No, this is completely on the other side of the country. Exactly.
1: Above the state of Washington. (laughs)
0: There you go over on the other side of the country. The idea of this small life, and the idea that when you're in a small life, you have this imagination of a larger existence, that there's got to be something bigger than this, and striving for that, and finding fame, as Arthur did, and finding that fame can be painful even though it's what you're striving for, especially when you compare that to the monotony of daily living. That's a big theme that that was brought up in this section. The author did an incredibly wonderful job describing that.
1: So when he describes it to everyone else, it sounds like paradise, but it was just where he grew up and Mm -hmm. it was confining for him. But, you know, he had to come to terms with what he really meant to, when he was described it. And I think she said something to the effect where as it went on and on and on, he has to tell these stories, it took on a less fantastical explanation is is the way I remember reading it.
2: And I really liked the, the quotation, it was gorgeous and he wanted to escape. So this notion that he's living in this sort of utopian island where you know everything is super beautiful. And if you've been out to British Columbia, it is, it's amazing. And this is a place, one of the few places in the world where you still do have three or 400 year old trees that just make you feel incredibly tiny and protected and just the sublimity of this landscape. But at the same time for Arthur, he wants he wants to escape and he's an actor. So part of that escape is through bringing other people's stories to life, right? And then he becomes this incredibly successful actor, moves to Hollywood and you guys know, like if you're in Canada, like making it in the U.S. is the mark of success much more than making it in Canada. And so, but then you you return to Canada, of course. Like that is part of the narrative of the Canadian celebrity you go to the US to make it and then you have to return to Canada exactly as Arthur does. And we meet him, as we talked about last time, in middle age when he's playing Lear, which nobody wants to do because that means that you're on the way down now <laughs> in, your, in your ascendancy. And so, I don't know, I really loved how she describes his celebrity life. And one of the quotes that I picked out was, Arthur lives in a permanent state of disorientation, like a low-grade fever. The question hanging over everything being, how did I get from there to here? And so even now in middle age, he can't quite understand how a boy from Delano Island became a Hollywood star and is now at one of Toronto's premier theaters, the Elgin Theater, doing this work that he loves, but he's also like, is this all there is? He's had all of these failed relationships. He has a son he's not very close to. One of the people he feels closest to is his his friend, Victoria, from high school, who he writes all these letters to, who doesn't respond to any of them.
0: Yeah, we get into that whole, the letters to V, because Kirsten finds this book of these published letters that he wrote to this Victoria, and, and just the the way that the author crafts this pain of this conversation that I want to communicate with this person and this person is not reciprocating my communication. It's so painful and so well put together here.
1: I think this is part of the human condition that is what he's going through, is that you have this first part of your life where you're just trying to establish yourself and trying to do what you think matters and then the second part you're you're determining whether that really did matter and you have a a whole different perspective on that and this idea of dual careers or dual parts of your life I think is very natural and you can think of any number of people who did that you know Benjamin Franklin was the printer and the publisher and all this other stuff but the second part of his life what was he? he was you know he was the uh jedi master to Abraham Lincoln wasn't he he was he went over to France and he represented the United States over as you know the guy wearing the coonskin hat to to show that we you know we're out in the he's in a city but you know we we're we're the the wilderness uh, uh, you know out in North America and I I'm using him, him as an example but really he's you could use any number of people who had second careers or because th- at the end of it they they weren't satisfied with what they thought was important to them
0: and we get so many stories in this section about that desire to escape that escape of normality from from both perspectives both from the the superstar who wants to be hidden and escape and have some solitude and and the people who are bored in their normal, quote unquote, lives and, and, and striving that desire for fame and excitement in their lives. And, and we all have that where we, we have what we have and we, we look over our shoulder maybe and, and think that we could have it different or better. Well, and, and, and,
1: and I don't mean to jump around, but think of Miranda who's writing this graphic novel that she doesn't really want anybody to say. She right. she's doing it because she <laughs> wants to do it. It's something that that fills her up. But you know, I'm you know, is it important to hide away your gift? I I, mm-hmm. I don't know. She,
2: and she, the thing she, about she, Miranda is that she's from Delano Island too, right? And this is what draws Arthur to Miranda because she's a she's a very retiring person. She's like a she's shy, beautiful, mm-hmm. but shy. And to Arthur, she's like he, he looks at her and thinks, she knows what I mean when I say Delano Island and no one else does. Mm-hmm. This is what draws them together in a way is that connection to home. And of course, this is an apocalyptic novel and the apocalypse comes from the Greek which I won't try to butcher the pronunciation of but it means to reveal. So the revelation, right? So the apocalypse reveals what's important. So when we look at Arthur's story and Arthur's stories, as he tells them to other people, but also as he experiences them, well, what's important, right? So this pandemic, where Arthur is the last person we see die naturally before the pandemic hits, it's a way to have us think as readers, as the characters are thinking in the story, what matters?
0: hmm and, and we're all doing that in our real life with our real pandemic. Exactly. And, and, and that perspective of, of trying to determine what really matters and who we really are and that escapism of the normal and the boring. This is all happening, Pam. It's all happening in real life. And, and not
1: to, you know, to throw this you know too crazy into personal lives or anything like that, but I spent 20 years in a state, in an area that was not the area that I grew up. And I've mm-hmm. returned, and it's so interesting.
0: Triumphantly.
1: Well, that the idea of the anchor <laughs> that you grew up with could become very natural. I mean, it, I, I guess it could be stifling too. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you guys complain about the, the weather or any number of things. A lot of these things I grew up with, and they're not burdens for me. They're just very natural,
0: normal. And I, I, normal. I you know,
1: I, I don't want to go too deep in it, but but it certainly. This idea of finding that person who had that shared experience with you, mm-hmm. how powerful is that? What does that say about where you grew up and the experiences you have and how important they are to potentially your settled mind and how you view, how you can go out and, I don't know, share your gifts to the world? What can I say?
0: That, that idea of wanting to escape that boring normality and going somewhere else and finding out that maybe you don't fit in there. And going back to your home and finding those connections with those people who understand you because of your shared history. There's, there's a lot to unpack in this story for sure. And why do you sound like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz? there's no place like home there's no place like home
1: <laughs>
0: now chip
2: we didn't get you to say which was your favorite story
1: i'm gonna go with miranda uh, okay and i and i'm just going to pick pick her i i just i thought that was that was kind of fascinating she seems to be comfortable with who who she, who she is And she's not really needing the approval of of someone else to find comfort. That is just an incredible. First of all, that is an incredible gift to have. Yes. And um, because it, you know, it just means that you can be. You're not seeking outside approval to exist, and she had to escape from her um, relationship with her with the. the person who, yeah, from the, for the from the artist who looked like he was on the rise, that was going to, but she, what did she do? She made a decision to, you know, he was go work in the corporate world, which she was blasted for by Pablo, and then found out she thrived in just created in the normalcy of everyday life, and what does that say that that? I mean, the world is full of everyday people, not the extraordinary, the ordinary. And a lot of people find comfort in it, but maybe think that that they're missing out on something because the extraordinary just is appealing, but I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but there's, there's, there's something to unpack there with her enjoyment of just fitting in to the normalcy of life that allows her to do the things that she values.
0: And one of the things she values is this graphic novel that she's writing. That is her escapism, is, is that idea of of expressing her feelings through this uh, silly little comic book. And she explores that so well here. And, and, and But the point
1: where I think I'm going to go to, because that, that truly is, that allows her to express the extraordinary. But really... Mm-hmm. It was a conversation with Pablo who was you know this golden child of artistic people who eventually had difficult time selling uh paintings but he's like screaming at her through a a telephone uh, because it shouldn't be in public right and she's sitting there at a desk doing ordinary stuff and she's recognizing like well I really don't need this why is this part of my life
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's interesting when they start to, um, when finally, after like seven or eight years of being together, Miranda realizes this isn't working. And Pablo writes to her and and he texts her, don't bother coming home. And here's, here's the quote around that. And she feels a peculiar giddiness when she reads this fourth text. There are thoughts of freedom and imminent escape. I could throw away almost everything she thinks and begin all over again. Station 11 will be my constant. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple things here. We suddenly move into the present tense. Now, you probably don't notice that when you read it, but it has an impact on you. That Miranda, we're with Miranda, and this is one of the reasons she's such an appealing character. She's often in the present tense. And so we're with her as she makes decisions. We're not looking at them in the past, even though it's in the past of the story, and so she feels this giddiness and she thinks, you know what, I could just start over. Now that my friends is the cultural fantasy of the apocalypse, right? So when we think, why do we read so many disaster novels, watch so many disaster films, etc.? Sometimes I think like as a culture, we look around our world and we think, whoa, we've messed things up pretty badly. You think about the climate crisis, you think about all sorts of inequalities, many things. In that fantasy, well, if there was a disaster, and we don't want to think too much about the details of the disaster sometimes, and you jumped ahead in the future, could we start over? Could we start fresh? And that's part of the apocalyptic revelation move of this genre. And so with Miranda, we get it on a small personal level. I will leave my abusive boyfriend, but I have to have a constant. I have to have something that grounds me or Chip, you always say that fills you up. I love that metaphor, which I had never used before I met you. Um, But that idea that station 11 will be her constant. Now, what is station 11? It's a graphic novel of the apocalypse. Right. So we, the reader, are reading Emily Mandel's Station Eleven, which is an apocalyptic novel in which one of her characters is writing Dr. Eleven, an apocalyptic graphic novel. And as we watch her write, I love the scenes where we watch Miranda draw a beautiful picture, write a little tag, and then delete it and mm-hmm. write another one. She's like, oh, that's too melodramatic. Oh, I'll write this one instead. So In this section, we see her writing about Dr. Eleven who has just found his closest friend assassinated. And there's a note beside him, we were not meant for this world, let us go home. Because in station 11, aliens now rule the earth, right? And so we're following people who escaped. And then Dr. Eleven thinks, I stood looking over my damaged home and tried to forget the sweetness of life on earth. And that's something that we are gonna see all those people 20 years in the future without electricity, without air conditioning, without flight, without communication, remembering the sweetness of life on earth, but also having to remember the malaise that we see through Arthur and Miranda and Pablo and Elizabeth and Clark and all of the characters that we see.
0: And it's such a great trick for her to write those words in this story and then to say that the character deleted those words because those words were too melodramatic. That is that's a that is a, a special kind song. of trick right there.
1: That's, that's why it's special writing. And the fantasy that we have that somehow we could just wipe everything clean and we could start over and it'd be a lot easier. That That is an interesting mind trick because... It's never easier. This book proves it. I mean, we don't have all this (laughs) this stuff available (laughs) to us. And you're like, well, you know, now we have to deal with drinking water again. Or now we have to deal with all the basics that we had to rise above to get to this point. So life is this, this incredibly intricate emergent order that we have today. But if you wiped it all away, you have to recreate all of that and you just you're assuming
0: that it would be better and when they find the untouched house the house that has been untouched for 20 years and they find a box of salt and and thinking of how we get things like salt and 20 years on we would not have those ways to get that and they are they're so happy to find the treasures that they find towels and and clothing that have been preserved from the before times i make my own sauce, steve I, I i cry i cry a lot <laughs> <laughs> capture capture that yeah. saline and put it into a bottle
2: <laughs> before we move to kirsten which is also like a very favorite story i just want to say i feel like with miranda it's so real that arthur and miranda have almost nothing in common except for their birthplace they're both lonely they're both in toronto and they both know what Delano Island means and that's how they end up together. And you guys like, that's so real, right? Think about different relationships that you've had or the people you know have had where it's just about like you click on this one level, but the relationship doesn't make sense. And I think that evening, the, the dinner party where we meet Clark and Elizabeth, who's about to become Arthur's second wife, it just felt so real. Like Arthur and Elizabeth, it's supposed to be a celebration of Arthur and Miranda's third anniversary. You know how you always call all your friends together to celebrate your third anniversary? Now, wait
1: a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Let's back I up a understand. second. That's the Wood Anniversary, Steve? I can't remember. It. Our,
0: <laughs> our third anniversary of Too Much Scrolling was a blowout huge party. We had the live band at the Blue Box Cafe in Elgin, which, by the way, is pronounced Elgin, not Elgin. I don't know how you Canadian people say things. <laughs> in Elgin, Illinois, the only place in the world where those letters, E-L-G-I-N, are pronounced Elgin. But we had a, we had a blowout third anniversary party we had so many people and so many laughs it was wonderful so
1: Steve when you go to the liquor store in in Mexico and you're looking for the gin aisle and you say el gin
0: yes that's that's Spanish (laughs) for the gin but Stephen
2: I'm gonna guess that at your too much scrolling anniversary party with your friend chip you did not find another co-host
1: and i tried
2: quickly humiliate chip
1: exactly exactly (laughs) well as if i had any (laughs) 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 self-esteem
2: anyway so here's the here's the situation so elizabeth gets very very drunk arthur and elizabeth are being completely indiscreet about the fact that they're having an affair at this third anniversary party Miranda's upset, but not devastated. She has her little Pomeranian dog, Luli. She, but mostly she has her art. She has Station 11. Like, Arthur's not the center of her life. She goes outside. She meets Van, the photographer, who will some years, well, maybe 10 years later, be the paramedic the night that Arthur dies. And then Miranda and Elizabeth have this conversation that I really love where Elizabeth says, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm about to steal your husband, basically. But I'm not a bad person. And then Elizabeth says, I think this is happening because it was supposed to happen. Elizabeth speaks very softly. I prefer not to think that I'm following a script, Miranda says. But she's tired, and there's no sting in her words. It's past four in the morning and too late in every sense. Now... I love that because this notion, people always say that when they have an affair, right? I think this was supposed to happen. Like this wasn't my fault. It's, it, this is supposed to be, it was meant to be. And then to just be like, you know what? I'd like to think that we make our own decisions, that we have free will, that we're not writing a script that someone else has written. Except of course we're reading a book and they are in a script. And they're not only characters in this novel, but they're also you know, performing Shakespeare and writing other novels. It's, I mean, it is all a script and it's too late in every sense because we the reader know that 20 years later the entire earth is reshaped by the pandemic which is gonna kill all these people.
1: I have this, here we go. I've got this, um, when you said that uh, quote I was immediately uh, reminded of lyrics to a song by a guy named Robbie Schaefer and um, basically, he's kind of confessing to his wife some, some real challenges. But after he kind of lays out all the cards on the table, he basically makes the comment that, hey, listen, we could continue to talk about this because it's late in the morning. And he goes, Why, while every demon is making sense, or we can wait into the morning and have a laugh at my expense. And this idea of... it's witching hour or it's really late in the morning and somehow you've created clarity during this moment but really you could just be talking nonsense because you know maybe you had too much to drink or maybe you were tired or something of that nature and whether you know that's the the time of reveal or not
2: yeah that idea of reveal revelation absolutely
0: At the Grenadier song that talks about it's not time to argue. The middle of the night is not the time to have this conversation. That's what you're thinking of is the Grenadier song, our our house band. Uh,
1: absolutely. Or or was it uh, during the Brady Bunch where um, uh, when Mike Brady says we we never go to go to bed angry. So <laughs> 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 Happen, happens early in the morning. It's all, it's gonna have a bow. It's gonna be perfect, Steve. <laughs> there you go.
2: Now, as we jump to the future, 20 years ahead with Kirsten's story. Now, I love the pandemic narrative, too, I must say. And we'll recall that the traveling symphony has left St. Deborah on the water, you know, which is pretty creepy with the prophet. And they have a rule of not interfering. So if there's bad stuff going on. They just keep moving. They are
0: very star Trek. Very, very exactly. star trek, right? Not interfering. <laughs> <Totally. There. laughs> oh. uh-huh.
2: So as we get to know Kirsten, who's now 28, she was just turning eight when the pandemic hit. She has huge memory gaps. And I really love how Mandel does this. Kirsten just doesn't remember the first couple of years of the apocalypse. And she was like eight to ten years old. So there's no, like normally people have pretty strong, solid memories at that point of their life. But the level of trauma she would have experienced means that whole thing is just a blur. And, you know, I do enjoy novels like The Stand that carefully narrate the immediate aftermath of a pandemic, super interesting. But in this case, I love that that's not what Mandel's interested in. She's like, we know those details, like, really really bad things happened to kirsten let's just accept that she was a little girl this really cute little girl terrible terrible things have happened to her we're not even going to go there she's let's just she doesn't even remember the details and i think that's that idea of like how do you move ahead sometimes you have to just wipe wipe the slate in a sense or
1: compartmentalize yeah,
2: compartmentalized. Yeah. Yeah,
1: this idea of like I'm going to block those memories and, and you know that happens to a lot of young people who go through traumatic experiences I mean you, you can imagine anything they could imagine because at some point you're trying to move forward now I guess they could come back eventually and um, sabotage you or hurt you and that's certainly why people go to therapy and stuff like that. But it could be just a way of getting through. I mean, imagine kids from World War II or um, Vietnam War or from any war. Any war. Yeah, basically this idea of trying to make sure that you know, those memories stay at that time.
2: Which is basically what this is about to become, right? Like this level mm-hmm. of pandemic where you're losing over 99% of the population. Sure. It's going to be just an absolute, like, war zone everywhere in the world. Mm. Now, Kirsten has these awesome tattoos, and that's something that I really love about her. So, the description of her tattoos is she has a survival is insufficient tattooed on her arm.
0: Which we talked about last week.
2: Yes. And one of my students got that same tattoo. And then she also has the two knives tattooed on her wrist. And we see her being interviewed, and this guy who's trying to like put together an oral history of the pandemic. He asks her and she says, I'm not talking about those. And you know it.
0: And so, and you know what they mean. You know what they mean asking. and I
2: will mm-hmm. not discuss them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Dieter, who's one of Kirsten's good friends in the traveling symphony, he's 40. So 12 years older than her. And she's always considered him just a friend. He's not someone she would ever have a relationship with. They share a tent. They argue about tattoos all the time. And he is like, you should never get a tattoo. It's way too dangerous. You could get infected. You could die of getting a tattoo in this world. But for Kirsten, it's important enough to have these markings on her body that she takes that risk. Again, the power of art, right? and of self-representation and of saying like, this is who I am, I'm owning it and taking it.
1: There's, there's a couple of ways of thinking about tattoos. Some people are signaling, you know, you think of the football players and the basketball players and stuff like that, they're, they're using them as art, I guess, for any number of reasons. And then, the, you know, any person, but for a number of people who've gone through experiences, they're remembrances or they are reminders or their affirmations or any number of things that are incredibly personal to them. And that's, I mean, obviously this is what Kirsten's going through. These, these are a reminder of this is where I was at that moment. And this is what I was feeling at that moment and looking either look at where I am or, you know, there are better days ahead or, you know, this was a high point or something of that nature.
2: And we will learn more about those knife tattoos as we go forward. The survival is insufficient quote comes from a Star Trek episode. And Dieter's like, how could you have something from Star Trek like permanently tattooed on your body? And this is one of those sort of questions I think that Mandel's exploring is like, what is the value of high art versus popular art? And I think she's coming down on the side of like, popular art has an enormous impact on people. And I love how August always looks for the TV guides in the houses that they visit. And when they go to that wonderful empty house that no one had visited, he finds a little starship enterprise, which is like a huge find. And and you can just imagine like in a world where you can't just immediately order everything that you want. It would be amazing to find a favorite book or a favorite bobblehead or whatever. You know, like things that we completely
0: take for granted.
1: Amazon wasn't delivering at that time.
0: Exactly. There's there's so many pieces of this story that I relate to so well. Between the Star Trek things and these models, this idea of finding this piece of nostalgia and this piece of my history, here it is 20 years later. And this is... Another one of the great stories that involve Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> of course. Of let, course me explain, let me explain. I was going let me explain. There, like Steve, all great stories. It it. <laughs> My theory is that Doctor Eleven is named after Doctor Who because the Eleventh Doctor started four years before this book was published. And I think that the author was thinking of the Eleventh Doctor when she wrote Doctor Eleven. I like, that. <laughs> I like
1: that. That's a that is a uh, that's a paper, Steve. <laughs> did
0: you Did you love how I s- I swerved into that one? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get back to the, the
1: the great big idea that life is for the living, and survival isn't everything. You know, to to live as in to exist is not enough. You must experience, right. yeah, and this this that's that's, in and, and, and you know their experiences right now certainly are. What we wouldn't describe as the highest experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harrowing.
2: And I feel like Kirsten knows this young. She, she understands that quite early on because she's been through a pandemic as a child. And she recognizes the importance of that idea enough to tattoo it on her body as a young woman. The reason I love Clark, I think, is because he doesn't come upon this notion until much later in life, until middle age. So Clark is a good friend of Arthur's from college, and we haven't spent much time with him yet. We just get to know him in this section. He meets up again with Arthur in middle age, and I like the description there. I'm sure you guys, my fellow middle-aged friends, have never experienced this. (laughs) The disorientation of meeting one's sagging contemporaries, memories of a younger face crashing into the reality of jowls, under-eye pouches, unexpected lines, and then the terrible realization that one probably looks just as old as they do. <laughs> this is so familiar, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen it in 20 years and you're like, whoa, they look old. And then you're like, oh, so do I. <laughs> and just that notion of like the way that we wear our histories. And of course we live in a society where people always try to look younger. We dye our hair. We do all kinds of crazy things. But in the apocalypse, man, you wear your history. You make it to middle age that's a badge that's a badge of honor and i feel like you know clark has this sort of he represents like our shallow understanding of our own life experiences until the pandemic sort of reveals so much to him
0: and and we get most of this story through these dear v letters right that's where we're meeting clark in in our story finally this idea of our history being written down in forms like letters is used to great effect here. And I, I wonder about how our history is going to be revealed in the future. We don't write that many letters anymore. Are our emails going to be like, you know, four words published in a book later? Millions and millions of (laughs) emails. Right. I, I want to read the book of, of Pambador's emails. <laughs> well, I,
2: well, just, so fascinating, I can tell
0: you. You, you, you just
1: kind of spurt an idea. Not that um, Google doesn't know what you're writing anyway. Um, they, they may not know specifically, but they certainly... Wouldn't it be interesting? You run an algorithm to try to grab the zeitgeist of the moment like, is everybody happy in their emails, or are they panicked in their emails? I mean, could you imagine being bored able to,
2: in their emails? Could you imagine
1: <laughs> get this emotion of an era based on responses?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and I like that you say that Chip, because really, this is kind of what Clark does, right? So Clark is a three hundred sixty degree assessment expert, which like. Is that even a job? But whatever. It is. This is the thing. It is. (laughs) So he goes into businesses and he interviews all of the associates and subordinates of some like important CEO. And then with all that information in mind, does this big 360 degree assessment and figures out how that person can improve their performance, their well-being, their efficiency, whatever. So. We see him go into an office and he meets with this woman, Dahlia, to talk about her boss. And she's like, oh, that guy is like such a workaholic. He's super unhappy. His whole life is all about the job. And he just realizes or doesn't realize that like the years are going by and he's getting no enjoyment out of life. This This is her perspective. And then she says, adulthood's full of ghosts. And she talks about how her boss is a sleepwalker. And then Clark just kind of has this moment of doing his own 360 and being like, what am I doing? Like, what is the purpose of my job?
0: And that metaphor of the pandemic again, coming in and er- erasing all of that and having everyone look at their life from a different perspective and, and, and realizing maybe how much they are enjoying it and how much they're doing what they love and how much they hate it and how much they want to change it maybe. There's, there's so much going on here.
1: All right. So if you remember Mike Judge's Office Space movie where uh, they had the meeting of the Bobs. The two Bobs were uh, interviewing each of the people. Yes. Mm-hmm. And th- our, our character, who was our lead, recognized just basically his heart wasn't there and life just wasn't living. And it was very much the 1980s office space is really what it was. And he basically decided to opt out. And he found a different career. Ultimately, he found a different career. But a lot of it was just going through the, uh, the reports he had to, to, to deliver and just recognizing this is madness and opting out.
2: And it's interesting because that's a comedic take on the exact same theme, which is like, what are the jobs that wouldn't exist after the apocalypse? And like, paparazzi is definitely one. <laughs> Actor would exist. See, this is the thing that she's looking at, right? So she's like, entertainment would need to continue, but the celebrity culture around entertainment would not. Right? Like the traveling symphony, they're not celebrities. Nobody's trying to publish their secret letters. They're just like workers on the same level as farmers and all of the different positions. And something like Clark's job, would never have any value after the apocalypse. No one needs a 360 degree assessment after the apocalypse and maybe not before either. Which brings us to the end of this section where Clark has his sort of mini revelation in the midst of all these big revelations. So the section ends, Clark wished he could somehow go back and find the iPhone people whom he jostled on the sidewalk earlier, apologize to them. I'm sorry, I've just realized that I'm as minimally present in this world as you are. I had no right to judge. And also he wanted to call every target of every 360 degree report and apologize to them too, because it's an awful thing to appear in someone else's report. He saw that now. It's an awful thing to be the target.
1: That grabbed me when I first listened to that. And I was reading that because it's an awful thing to be a target. Yeah, and just I I immediately thought, and in fact, it's it's part of getting older and maturing, just how much kinder you think you have to be kind. You need to take it like up about ten times uh, (laughs) from what you think you need, because there's so many variables you're just not aware of. You're just there's just no way you can know what the person experienced that day that's giving you the awful service or. The thing that you're being, you feel it's not, you're not being righted on or something of that nature. And this every person needs to have a lot more benefit of the doubt. Their intentions were true, whatever. And I recognize that people sleep through through walk and there are people who have malicious uh, intent with that. But most people are just trying to get to you know, that thing that they think they value at this time. And it's just a good time to, to just remember that um, when you put a target in another person's back, uh, I mean, sometimes maybe you, ask, you need to ask whether you're it's you're reflecting yourself onto them.
0: Hmm. This is the most philosophical book that we've read, which is weird because we would, I would have expected the, the Bill Gates How to Prevent the Climate Disaster book to be much more philosophical. But here we are. We are thinking through all of these perspectives, thinking through all of who we are based on this writing. This is, again, masterful use of words. This is putting these ideas into our heads in such a wonderful way.
1: That's, that's the power of art. That's the power of presenting ideas through art as opposed to lecturing.
0: Yeah, Did you just products. come around to fiction over nonfiction? <laughs> Did we just change Chip? <laughs> He's an artist at heart. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. That is very true. All right. Pam, this is so philosophical. This is such a deep conversation. Uh, What are we going to read for next week to get prepared for our next deep conversation?
2: Well, our next section is a little bit shorter than this one. It's parts five and six. So that's chapters 27 through 41. um, just about 70 pages.
0: And so I, I think you'll really enjoy them. All right. Hopefully we will... We'll get to uh, some some more large answers to large questions next week. Uh, I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. Well, next week we'll be starting our eighth year of podcasting, Chip. Eight, this yeah. is our anniversary week. Happy anniversary, by the way.
1: How awesome is that? We should we'll probably go do something seven. to
0: celebrate. We should. we should. We should get together and, and have a, a celebration. We should invite the band Grenadier, which is our house band, and have our anniversary show this week. A, a post-pandemic uh, celebration. Oh, post-pandemic anniversary show. We're not doing that, by the way, just so you know. But we should,
2: <laughs> we should get together. But happy anniversary. Happy Canada Day. Happy Fourth of July. There's a lot of things going on. It's
0: a big celebration week, for sure. I think we have enough information, Pam. What do you think? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. We can come back next week. We can talk some more. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Heston's blog. And I'm
2: Cam Bedore.
0: We See you in the future.
2: And the facts. And the apocalypse.